Welcome to episode 253 of the Morning Disco Podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario. And I'm joined once again by Jaime Lippas Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. All righty then. So I guess we'll start off with some uh, Ask MTJC, Jaime. Is that what we do? Looks like we have some fact check. Oh, fact check. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is... Well, so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about... Um, this is, I guess, three weeks ago or something like that. But Becky Hensmeyer had done some her sort of wish list for WWDC. And I was listening to the... the that previous episode last week and she had made some predictions about her in her wish list you know we kind of said well we're not really sure that they're going to do what they're going to do and, and and they're going to meet what her wish list was but what was interesting about it was she had said that she would like that they had come up with a way of improving interface builder to have rounded corners on buttons and, and objects like that and and she sort of her wish list kind of fits into some of the things that swift ui swift ui has brought to the table in terms of their in terms of how things work, you know, so making it easier to do um, stuff. It's, I mean, still early days for SwiftUI, but I just thought I'd give her the nod for having picked out some of the things that actually did show up on WWDC, right? Mm-hmm. So, all right, so we ask MTJC, honey. You got three of them from They're from you. me. <laughs> what do you know? The call is What's coming that? from inside the house. What's all <laughs> that? Yeah, exactly. I was just watching Rick and Morty, and they just did that that gag. Um, yeah, this is an interesting thing. I, I've, I've been following, I, there was a couple of people that have had some trouble with uh, when they first get you know Catalina going. Of course, you need in order to have the, the Swift UI preview work on Xcode 11, you need to have you need to be running Catalina. And uh, initially, um, a lot of people are having trouble with uh, Xcode just getting it to run. And one of the things I found, and I was actually surprised by this, was that when I tried to run it, I got an error. Uh, I mean, Xcode ran, but I mean, when I tried to do the preview thing after I finally installed Catalina, um, maybe it was because I had already run Xcode under Mojave. I had to agree to to the licensing, and and how I found that was when I clicked on the the um, the error thing, the error screen, which is um, it said that something to the effect that that uh, I think I have a picture of it here. Yeah, failed to code sign, and then agreeing to the. Uh, Xcode iOS license requires admin privileges, blah, 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 blah. So I ran sudo Xcode build dash license on my command line and I was able to agree to the command, to the, to the license agreement on the command line. So, and bef- until I did that, I didn't really, uh, wasn't able to run. I don't know if that's been around for a while in terms of agreeing to the, the licensing, but doing it on the command line was, was new for me. So it was interesting sort of fix to a problem that didn't really, didn't really explain itself very well. So that's equivalent to just going on the website and doing it manually, but you can do a command line. Well, no, this is this was actually in. I guess probably because it's beta software, you have to at some point you have to you know uh, agree to the fact that you're running beta software and you're agreeing to like you know whatever non-disclosures Apple's asking you to. I, of course, I didn't read the thing; I just scrolled through it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, because you have to scroll to the bottom and then you click on you have to ye- yes for agree or something like that. And you go capital Y. Um, but I, I, it was interesting that that the the preview wouldn't run until I had agreed to that, right? So that was the first. That was my first. Uh, Ask MTJC. And what's the next one? Next one is... So we were talking last week about... Um, I think we all made comments at, about the iPad OS, about whether it's just a name change or if there's actually some new functionality put into it. And uh, so in a, in a, a vlog entry here on uh, from uh, Vector, uh, Randy Ritchie goes through some of the things about... He had, he'd written a piece a couple of months ago or weeks ago about whether the iPad Pro can replace your laptop or not. Um, and he kind of concluded that it wasn't quite there 
there yet, but then after having looked at iPad OS and some of the new things have come into into play, um, he says, yeah, it kind of sort of is there. But in the, the video, he talks, talks about some of the new things that have come to iPad OS and differentiate it from regular iOS. I mean, things like multiple windows. I think we, we might have touched on that last week. Um, trying to think, oh, you can have you can now have pointers. I, I've actually got you know Magic Mouse connected to my iPad Pro right now, um, and I'm able to get using accessibility. You're able to get the the pointer to work like you would with a mouse. It's a bit clunky, but it is possible to use uh, assistive touch to with a mouse. Or and some people are doing it with multiple multiple um, Multifunction mice and trackpads and stuff like that as well. So that's a different different thing. Um, can't remember off the top of my head what the other things were, but there was a number of things. If you watch the video, you'll see that uh, he covers off a few things that are different in iPad OS already uh, from regular iOS. Right. So that's what that one's about. And the last one is from our friends at MTJC at Ask MTJC. So my friend friend of mine at work, uh, Manoj Pekaderi, he doesn't have a Twitter account, so I couldn't shout him out here, but he was he was playing with his phone today at the office and uh, so I said well put a, put a Mac Pro on my desk and so the, this one's sitting next to my hat mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah, not we, got, we had played small with the hat size version well we, yeah we had scaled it down quite a bit actually yeah, it looks looks more like a Mac Mini than than uh, the proper because uh, they're, they're actually pretty big pretty tall I've seen some yeah I think so video I've seen some video of them they're not quite as tall as, as a, the, the original cheese grater Mac but they're they're quite tall um, considering you know how, uh, what they are really right so I mean if you, even if you think about the size of a PCI card it's got to be that wide and that long, right? So, mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. so anyway, there's my hat there with a picture of a Mac Pro. And again, it's interesting, you know, the lighting kind of all reflective of the surface that it's sitting on as well. We think we talked about that last week as well, right? Yeah, it's pretty neat um, that it pulls in that kind of walnutty table sort of look to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the reflection from my the screen beside it. It doesn't, it doesn't include the uh, the monitor. That I was trying to get him to tuck it in beside the, the the monitor, which is at the back there. But it's kind of sitting in front of it if you look at it. But it's, yeah, it's a pretty pretty cool little uh, demonstration of AR. And and what um, Alexis was talking about at the live from the podcast studio um, that it picks up. It, it it does make it you know dirty in terms of um, adding video effa- video artifacts and to make it look more like a real object rather than a nice mm-hmm. clean three D rendered image. Right. Unfortunately, you can't render the thousand dollar monitor stand in VR. Yeah. Well, as we, as Jaime called it last week, the most expensive dongle, right? Mm-hmm. So. For the stand, for sure, yeah. yeah. Alright, so what's what's next there, Jaime? Just real quick follow-up, I think people may or may or may not have missed this, and that was the uh, the back to the Mac for Twitter. Some time ago, Twitter mm-hmm. had dropped support for its Mac desktop app, but through the magic of uh, Marzipan, now Project Catalyst, they mm-hmm. will be bringing back Twitter as a native app instead of a web page to, your, uh, to a Mac near you. I'm Catalina time. Yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. cool. Um, I think many people. I'm still using Twitterific, my, or not Twitterific, um, TweetDeck app myself, right? Sure, um, and it definitely makes sense. But I think it gives another avenue for apps to exist rather than being uh, a default. Like, well, I guess you have to use a web page or the other one that I think a lot of folks don't really like, and that's to have an electron-based app like Slack, for right, example. Yeah, yeah. Well, wasn't there some complaints that the Twitter app that they had out a few months ago was not not truly native? 
Native? I guess it's a year ago that it was out. For the uh, Mac. Yeah. I don't remember how long it's been since since they had it. But yeah, you're right. Running they, it on, they did drop it for uh, like a year, maybe two. And then now they're like, oh, hey, we can just turn our, our iPhone slash iPad app into Catalyst-based app and run it on Mac. Yeah, I mean, there was one, I saw one comment about that and the fact that uh, the iPad app has a lot of empty space on it. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen, if you've worked with it on, I have an iPad Pro 12-inch and it's quite, you know, quite a lot of wasted space on, on the app. So thank goodness for uh, for the new sidecar thing, not sidecar, what do they call it when you have the um, the side image, I guess multiple windows, multitasking, they call it, right? Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Their, their iPad app doesn't do anything really spectacular. You know, it doesn't, as far as I can tell, do any sort of size class detection and say, oh, let's put a multi-column layout or um, let's put Twitter moments on the side while you've got the main timeline here or there, or split view kind of stuff. Like, no, yeah, it's just yeah. big table views spread out a little bit larger than they would be on uh, on iPhone. Uh, images work out a little bit because at the very least, it does seem like to do some sort of uh, proportional-based layout. But yeah, it's. It, I don't think the point is that uh, any of these Project Catalyst things will necessarily be... Um, I don't know, uh, award-winning, Apple design award-winning apps, um, but I think they'll at least exist as apps and not be like, oh, well, I guess use the, <laughs> refresh this web page. Yeah, I mean, just the learning curve on learning AppKit alone, I think, was probably the, the blocker for a lot of people, right? No. Yeah, I, I think it's not insurmountable, but I mean, even a company the size of Twitter is like, what's the point? We're not charging for it, so there's not a huge angle mm-hmm. to say like, oh, we're going to recruit our investment here. It's like, how, how exactly? But don't they make money off their ads that they could be showing on the Mac? Sure, but how would that be any different than you looking at it on a web page? Mm. It, it didn't really justify the extra effort to make um, a Mac app at all, apparently, much less one that was going to be uh, top-notch. So I don't think sure. Catalyst is a either-or thing for developers. I think it just really depends on what your use case is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on the subject of what's new in Swift 5.1, there was a talk uh, given by, wait for it, Federico Zanatello that uh, somebody pointed out. And uh, he's, so he's got a slide deck up here on uh, uh, speaker deck and uh, goes through a number of different things. I don't know if you guys have looked at this stuff, but uh, a bit more explanation than we've seen in some of the other stuff. Um, I guess some things from the ordered cl- collection diffing, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And there's some things we recognize. Uh, some things I did not like. What was it? Uh, subscripts everywhere. I didn't I didn't see that one. So they give an example of the HTTP status code that you can mm-hmm. now subscript as like status code. And then like as if you're indexing from an array, you know, the 404 and you can get that so that's pretty nice it's a little bit of syntactic sugar oh where um, is that what page is that on oh is there i don't think there's a page number on here can you see oh yeah okay you can see it in the url it is slide number 12 oh, oh not that. okay cool i think some syntactic sugar i'm not super happy with in terms of i don't really think it's a great idea for people to use this outside the context of swift ui and that is slide number 13 sc0255 implicit returns from single expression functions uh, mm-hmm. this slide is arguing that uh, the less code the better and they're showing a uh, table view delegates um, uh, table view data source I should say um, method and it's just you know number of rows in section five maybe uh, it's not horrendous you know but I think in this case uh, the return five is feels like it's a little bit
bit less likely to end up with um, accidental overlooking uh, just because of the extra visual weight. Yeah, I, no, that's I a little bit. Totally agree with you in a case like this, where I think it could be useful is if what's in the closure is some kind of an equation, and so it sort of looks like yeah, the like it's doing what it's really doing, and the way like the closure is calculating something and then returning it. To me, that makes a little bit more sense mm-hmm. than just having a number, you know, just a number five right there. So I'm yeah. on this one. Yeah, but and, even though the return type is, is declared as an int there, I guess it, yeah, I don't know, I guess so. I mean, it's, it's, it's still you know works of course, and um, I, I think it's my like six extra it, you know, type. I think my guidance on it would be to just not go crazy and say, oh, we never have to put the word return. I'm just going to try <laughs> to find ways in which I can avoid the word return mm-hmm. uh, in these. Yeah. I think it, it just hurts code clarity, and obviously this does have use cases for um, closure type calculation stuff, like Mark mentioned, and and of course the way that um, uh, Swift UI's stuff works. Uh, so just a little bit of caution. Just let's not go crazy as a community and have all this unreadable, hard to read code just right, because right. we can do yeah. this thing. Yeah, like that doesn't happen already with Swift. People, right. <laughs> I don't know if I have this tweet handy, but somebody um, somebody was tweeting like, oh, with Objective-C, make sure you name things so that it reads like prose. It's Swift's one to five. You know, the types are, are taken care of, so make sure you name something with clarity. And Swift 5.1, dollar sign, YOLO, at VAR. <laughs> all this like crazy stuff that's hard to hard to read. So, yeah. yeah. And, and it is true that in Swift, many different syntactical, structures kind of look the same at first glance mm-hmm. closures and functions and, and and things like that and uh, uh, the calculated uh, uh, var types you know things like that they all kind of look the same so you have to look sort of closely sometimes to figure out what it is so yeah sometimes right. it's not particularly clear right hmm. one thing I think I want Mark's attention on in particular is slide number 10 slide. the simd editions the single instruction multiple data oh yeah I heard about this yeah a lot of the accelerate framework is now uh, is now in Swift which I think it's kind of an awesome thing. Although I haven't, I haven't done anything with it in Swift yet. Uh, I just noticed that it was available, so I'm, I'm sort of excited about this. Looks like they made it easier, so you don't have to do the the crazy unsafe pointer. Yes, stuff yes, with, with which C. was yeah. always kind of well, more than kind of very awkward and painful every time you had to use it. Yeah, so it's yeah. it is nice that they're using generics too, that you can so you can um, simplify your expressions. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Next we have yeah. Next, this is a story I was thinking about, Hami, when I was reading it. But um, and and also what we've been talking about with copycats and you know hackers and people taking advantage of making clones of other apps and duping people into you know falling down the wrong rabbit hole. Um, but Niantic, I think they're the makers of uh, Pokemon Go. Is that correct, Hami? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're uh, they're suing a company called Global Plus Plus uh, for making hacked versions of the Pokemon Go uh, app. So I think this is kind of interesting. That that um, you know we obviously don't poke the bear, but uh, I think that uh, when you have a large company like Niantic, I think we talked about is this the same company on um, that we talked about on Spotcast that has ninety billion dollars in um, royalties and things like that, money's made from the Pokemon fran- franchise. That so same company. A little bit of clarification because it is a, a Pokemon Go is the game is a result of a partnership between Niantic, the um, I think former Google company, I can't remember what their relationship is with Google anymore, and. And the Pokemon Company, a subsidiary, I think, of Nintendo. The Pokemon Company has boatloads of cash coming in, and that's the ninety-some billion um, that they've taken in for the franchise over the last twenty-some years. So yeah, like there's a there's a couple of big bears that tag teaming bears. Yeah, we were, we were on the context is that in, on Spotcast we were talking about you know the amount of money that the the um, Avengers franchise has made, or even the Star Trek franchise has made, or the Star Wars franchise has made, and they're all in the you know. 
hundreds of millions of dollars or something like that. I forget what it was. And, but they're, they're eclipsed by the, the Pokemon franchise at 90 billion with a B, right? Um, anyway, uh, over the lifetime of the, of the franchise. But, um, yeah, so here's a big bear that, they, that, you know, somebody's decided to make a copy and, and it's, it was only a matter of time before they come after. I mean, like they would normally just send, you would think they would just send a send, cease and desist, but uh, to actually go after somebody, another game developer with a lawsuit in hand. Well, it looks like this developer has also hacked Ingress and, and a Harry Potter game that yeah, the yeah. same company that Niantic made. So it looks like they're, they've been doing this for some time. It's it's not clear from the article whether they really hacked the code and are using the source code or just made a spoof. It's hard to say. They, yeah, they, yeah. The article uses both words interchangeably. So I wonder I wonder what they actually did. I mean, if they, if they really did hack the code and they're using, you know, they're just rebuilding the source code with a few changes, then that's, yeah, that's pretty illegal. Yeah. yeah. Or even if they're doing what I, another alternative I thought of, of maybe they did uh, like hex dumps to see what the binary is doing mm-hmm. and then patched over the part. Because they, they, here in this article it describes it like um, it gives players a joystick so they can just play like like as if it was a normal video game and not a video game you have to go outside and walk in the park sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine that they found this bit of code or areas that they relieved were the bits of code in the binary itself and said, oh, I bet you this is looking for uh, directional commands or positioning commands and then found mm-hmm. a way to inject stuff over the top mm-hmm. of that. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting that uh, this is happening. So we always complain about, you know, people copying other apps and successful apps and successful profiles and the socials. So it's kind of an interesting thing. So, all right. So the next thing we were talking, I guess, last week about where the, uh, the new file system uh, stuff in APFS. And uh, so I sat and I watched the session. Uh, of course, I was having some trouble with my my uh, Catalina Drive, Catalina 1 or, or, or 10.5, for 1 beta 1, I guess, um, or just beta. Uh, weird things happening with, with the wrong wrong amount of space being recorded reported back in terms of how much space I had left on the drive and I'm throwing away gigabytes of stuff and the size of the drive isn't going down. In fact, a couple of times I had to like reboot and go and, you know, go into recovery mode and, and fix them up. But so I watched this video on um, on the what's new in file systems and what's interesting is is they've gone to a, uh, as I said, what I discovered last week was that, you know, you would have you, you have two APFS volumes set up on your, on your one single drive and it would name one, you know, um, for instance, the name of my drive is Catalina, and another one would be Catalina, and then hyphen or space, and then data. And so, what was what's happening is they've created a read-only partition or read-only volume in APFS to stick the operating system in, and then the rest of the data stuff, like your user data, is is living lives on this other other volume. And they they're duplicating um, instead of using symbolic links to basically connect them, they've come up with this new um, thing called a firm link, which is a bidirectional symbolic link if I can call it that. So they would, you know, they would duplicate the folder structure on both drives so that the operating system could still navigate and, you know, apps that needed access to things in the systems library and vice versa, coming back to the data drive, uh, would be able to automatically connect. So um, that being said, I've just installed beta 2 on my uh, on my Mac and my problems with the amount of space available on the drive have gone away. So there must have been a bug in in the initial beta, surprise, surprise, but, uh, but it seems to have remedied itself. But it was interesting. Interesting uh, talk on how they decide, why they decided to go to this protected file system um, structure with uh, with Catalina, and um, you know, to gives them more uh, future ability to work with the drives. And actually, just as a side note, we were talking last week about sort of traditional Unix, and so we do still have um, APSF volumes that are created on the, on your drive. There's a recovery sec- a recovery volume. There's a preboot volume. There's also a virtual memory, which we used to call swap back in the day. Um, so and so now the root drive is what they're 
calling the the, the main place where the operating system lives, um, all, all within one single disk. And yeah, so that's kind of cool. And and so uh, just a, a tip, I think I was talking to a couple of people about how I I've, I've installed Catalina on three different Macs, and one of them one of them I had limited amount of space on, so I wanted to con- con- maintain my Mojave um, operating system as well as my Catalina one while I was you know playing around with things. And so what I what I did was actually went into APFS and I created a AP, I created a volume and then st- installed the operating system there. And then when um, I created a dummy admin account for, to start off with, and then I created my own account, and I, instead of linking it to a home folder on the, the Catalina data drive, I connected it back to my Mojave data drive. So I'm still able, I don't have to have duplicated personal data floating around. I just have one, uh, one location on the APFS volumes where all of my, you know, my working data lives, and I can switch back and forth between Mojave and Catalina without a problem. So it's kind of, it's interesting the way they've, they've come with this sort of um, new way of, of, uh, dividing up the disk, and of course, you know they're doing the the protected system for uh, for the sake of um, protecting the operating system from being hacked or exploited in some strange ways, right? By people outside of your system, right? Well, like I say, yeah, that's pretty neat. And I was wondering about um, some of the Catalina stuff because this, this machine is old and creaky enough that I I have doubts about experimenting with a Catalina volume. But it was kind of nice right. to hear that it is possible to do that without having to sacrifice your your production machine. Or or find a very good backup to start using the live preview stuff in particular for. Um, I'm, I'm running on like a 20, 2013, I think, um, uh, MacBook Air with my Catalina in it, and it seems to run pretty fine. It's actually, I've noticed quite a bit of speed improvement between beta 1 and beta 2 as well. Mm. So, and I also, I think we talked when, when APFS first came onto the scene, uh, I, I was told by Apple not to clone my drives because I was used to clone drives to make, you know, make an image of a, a drive the way I wanted it at work, for instance, and we had to deploy to multiple system so it would basically clone a, a, a good setup onto each computer as as new user, new developers came on board and then uh, when Mojave came around and, hi, and I think High Sierra was the first one on APFS they suggest they suggested that we don't um, do that cloning thing that we do a proper install and so we kind of had to go that way and and um, just build them up directly uh, as we would and so what Apple has now come out with because of APFS if so they have this new uh, utility called ASR Restore. So I don't know if you remember the old Restore thing they had. They used to f- send you a, C- a CD-ROM and you could restore your operating system or wipe. It basically would wipe your, your drive and start again. Mm-hmm. So with this ASR Restore, they've got a way of, of you can clone, basically copy the, the files from one system. So one, one APF, APFS volume to another one. In fact, you can also, if you, they even have this concept of snapshots where they have different states of your drive. And so you can restore, move a snapshot from one one volume to another too as well. So depending on you can so you can mix and match that way. And the reason that this would be useful in education or enterprise places where you need to replicate multiple, you know, replicate Macs across multiple uh, devices, right? So it's kind of interesting that they've done that too. So that's the ASR restore. So that's of course you can read or see see that in the uh, the video that we'll have linked in the show notes you know, for people. All right. The last thing they talked about in this this uh, new and oh, it's new in file systems is the uh, is the way that you're dealing with um USB keys on iPads and network volumes on iPads, um, and the, and how they're handling the files uh, as they come in through onto the iPad. So you know they, they you can't use executables, but you can access photos, you can access files, you can go onto your other Macs and and grab things with Samba shares. That's kind of cool. And on a side note, so we have this uh, a weekly forum at our office, and uh, so we have of course we have like a, a meeting notes page, and we all like register on the page to show we're there. And we put our agenda, what we're going to talk about, and we have all our project status. 
processes and stuff like that. Let me go through it. And I was talking about um, I was talking about some uh, a link that I found, um, and I said I would link I would put a link in the show notes, and everybody laughed. <laughs> <laughs> he said show notes. Yeah, it just sort of just fell out of my face that way. Yeah, it just it's like um, you know students accidentally calling the teacher mom or something. You just kind of yeah. get used to that certain context muscle, muscle memory. I just I'm going to yeah. put a link and and the show notes came out on. Um, wait, is it me again? With a, if an article from the Star, Toronto yeah, from the Toronto Star. Star, which is actually from the Wall Street Journal. If you look at the link there, but um, yeah, Carol left us. Friend of the show, Carol left us out for me this morning. Um, that uh, uh, there's a, there's a uh, the, the people who make the um, the uh, displays for the iPhone 10 R. The Japan Display Incorporated is having trouble with uh, with um, fulfilling or staying in business. I guess they're the people that make the displays for the the uh, LED. The Displays for the iPhone 10R, liquid crystal. Sorry, liquid crystal LCD displays for liquid crystal displays for the 10R. 10R? No. Yeah, 10R, right? Yeah, because it's like tenor. Um, yeah. So it, apparently they're having trouble, and Apple's been apparently pretty pretty decent with them about uh, you know letting them take their time to pay back, and and they have like certain they let the money to get started, and uh, they're they're being decent about it. So it's uh, it's just because of the sluggish sales that uh, these guys are having trouble uh, trouble staying staying in business. So which is kind of interesting yeah i'm a little surprised i wish this went into more detail of of why because there's sluggish sales and then there's we overreached assuming that this was going to be a mega hit right yeah um, maybe i would guess one possibility is that they thought oh you know we'll we'll build this number of units because apple is apple and they'll just sell you know this many and it turned out like well kind of sold okay but we really didn't need that extra 25 percent of units or some other overproduction let's say yeah these these are the uh the liquid crystal displays that are pretty much only in the in the 10R, so not not the OLEDs that are in the 10S or the or the 10S Max. So, so I wonder if they were expecting uh, proportionally more sales of the 10R, say into China or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. because they're at the you know they're sort of lower price point of the of the uh, of the offering, and and those maybe didn't do as well as as expected, or maybe more people bought the 10S because remember we we talked about this when they first came out that the difference between the 10R and the 10S was not that big of a deal to to justify the price difference, right? I remember thinking that if I'm going to buy one, I might as well buy the 10S instead of the 10R. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 10R was sort of the, I can buy this movie popcorn at $5, or I can get the size that's next up for like a dollar more, and it's twice exactly. as big. Exactly, exactly. You know? yeah. yeah, so yeah. who buys the cheaper one? The cheaper one's only there to make you want to buy the more expensive one. Yeah, and I wish I knew more here because, I, I mean, I, I don't know, we, we don't, still don't know exactly what's going to happen come September, but isn't it within reason that there's like a, a 10R2, you know, slightly upgraded specs, maybe one new color? Like, it, it feels like, yes, it sucks that for these guys, they they presumably might have some extra inventory of displays, but don't know about displays. I'm hoping they don't perish too soon, that they could just go to, like, store these in Tim Cook's backyard and then <laughs> pull them out when they need them come September. And like, okay, you know, let's not do that again, but at least we're going to use up our, our inventory stock while we're making these 10R2 uh, or assembling them. Yeah, yeah. I think what, what I was trying to say is that that they're that Apple is apparently lending them. I don't know if it's lending them funny money or whatever, but they're they're helping them uh, continue to uh, to stay in business, right? So yeah. yeah, there was twenty twenty billion yen a year is what they were supposed to pay back to Apple. So I don't know what that is in U.S. dollars or metric. 
Uh, take off two zeros, <laughs> roughly, because it's, it's like a hundred to one. Or sorry, uh, sorry. Take off one zero because it's ten to one. Mm-hmm. Ten to one or a hundred to one? Isn't it? I don't oh, wait, know. Yeah, to a hundred hundred yen to one dollar. You're right. Two zeros. Two yeah, zeros, yeah. So that's like two hundred million dollars, which is you know certainly not chump change, but for Apple, it's it's not really much of any, much of anything. Right, right. Uh, yeah. But you know, Apple Apple's never been in the in the business of uh, you know helping out other com- companies for out of the goodness of their heart. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. so so I think this implies pretty strongly that Apple has a plan for this type of display going forward. So I think we we probably you know we probably can expect that something Apple offers in the not too far future is going to use this technology, and and they're depending on them to 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 uh, to meet the demand for the for their new product, whether it's a XR2 or whether it's a SE2 or or something you know or or you know they're going to use that for you know the the heads up display in the new Apple Car or something or who knows. <laughs> the rear view mirror. Yeah, it, it's also not um, not unheard of. They did do this once, at least once before, with the Sapphire Display Company. Their oh, but remember me. they pulled the plug on them, and and it was yeah. it was bloody and ugly at the end. Yeah, I mean, but mm. they did try really hard. It wasn't like oh, you didn't meet you didn't meet the goal. Okay, you're done. They're like okay, let's give them a little bit more time and effort and money, and then they said no, we're done here. This is this yeah. has gone far enough. Mm-hmm. But in that case, yeah. I think Apple's um, business plan changed. Right, they were planning to use the, the sapphire substrates for something, and then ended up not using them. Or I, I don't remember the details at this point. I remember it being like watch initially. And Might have been the watch. Yeah, rumors that they would bring it to iPhone next, the following year, and then that never really panned out. Presumably, it was a lot harder to, to get iPhone-sized sapphire to work consistently versus the considerably smaller yeah. uh, watch display. Mm-hmm. Oh, good timing. Next one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, we're we're into the uh, the main section where we're talking about beta stuff and talking about iOS 13 stuff. And uh, in this case, we have a tweet by Federico Fedici. And uh, full disclosure, this is something he found in the most recent uh, iOS 13 beta 2. No warranty is expressed or implied that this will continue to be an actual feature come September. Your mileage may vary. Right. Your kilometerage may vary. And uh, in this case, he's got a screenshot of deleting an app with an active subscription. And you get a little pop-up that says, do you want to keep this subscription? You can. Or you can manage your subscriptions like, no, I actually would like to remove this subscription. So that's a nice real uh, user experience update that helps people not you know, accidentally forget to leave their subscriptions running when they uh, sort of intended to get rid of something. Mm-hmm. Nice. Anyway, you're next on the uh, the view controller presentation changes. Yeah, I haven't really gone through all of this. And obviously, I'm like negligent in not going through the requisite WWDC session. But this is a pretty good uh, article by uh, Jeff Hackworth on the view controller presentation changes in iOS 13. And there's some right. some nicer ones, but I think I'm going to start with the most uh, problematic one, and then we can talk about the nicer one. So the most problematic one, I think, for a lot of, well, not many, I think, developers out there will be the swipe to dismiss being something that is automatically applied and you have to explicitly opt out of. Hmm. So the little, like, card-like view, you know, presenting a modal view controller, and now you get this cool little card-like view. Um, but the thing is, users can just swipe it away like a card, like you would kind of expected that UI. This might be a problem if you're one of those apps out there that hides, uh, you know, authentication required material behind some sort of mobile right. view controller. Like, oh, please sign in with your account. And then, okay, now you can see this thing. So I would at the very least go in and make sure you set the, and I lost place. It's like modal presentation. Is modal in presentation is the uh, view controller property. Mm-hmm. When you set that on the view controller, you force the presentation hosting the view controller into modal behavior. 
behavior, right? So might want to go take a look at that one in the docs. Yeah. I saw some some Twitter videos too of, of maybe from the same guy of um, the ways that they've changed the, the transitions and things like that on, on these like alert views and uh, action sheets and stuff like that, right? That's related to this this topic here, right? Yeah. And in and, and other things that have changed, like he's got some really handy layout guide type stuff, mm-hmm. measurements that show how uh, form sheets and stuff will, and modal presentations on iPad will differ slightly. So you might want to take a look and see how those happen. But there's some, you know, there's some positive stuff in here. It's not all gloom and doom. I just wanted to bring that one to the forefront. Um, of course, the card little stuff view looks pretty nice, but uh, you also get some, jeez, uh, I just lost it. Well, it's in here. We'll have it in the show notes for those of you driving in <laughs> home. This article's big enough. I can't find the uh, interesting nugget. It's in there somewhere. If you find an interesting nugget in this article, hit us up on Twitter, hashtag AskMTJC. Yeah, and he points us to uh, three sessions that you may want to check out. Implementing dark mode on iOS is one of them. That's 214. Uh, modernizing UI for iOS 13 is 224. And what's new in iOS and macOS design, which is 801. So things to look at. And he's got a bunch of other links in the bottom, too, on uh, useful resources for persons to look at. It is it is kind of interesting that this emphasizes the point that Apple still seems a little bit schizophrenic in iOS 13 about uh, using UI kit versus using SwiftUI. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, you know, if, if SwiftUI really is the new paradigm and it's supposed to, it's meant to be something to switch to in the short term, why do all right. this UI kit work? It almost almost makes you think that SwiftUI is kind of like the state of SwiftUI is kind of like the state of Swift 1 and where here it is, you know, start getting used to it. Yeah. Uh, and we're not going to tell you that it's beta because we're we don't because we want you to use it we want you to look at but (laughs) it may not really be ready for prime time for a little while a couple of years or something like that we'll have to see we'll talk about it a bit in in my pick but um so i've been playing around with the the new combine and uh combine (laughs) combine and uh and the new form stuff that came out in in, uh, beta 2 right so we have the ability to create forms and that means like things like uh you know uh, text fields and uh you know buttons that are that look like table rows uh you know more more like that kind of style Mm -hmm. and looking at it i'm from a designer point of view i'm like it's almost like this is different enough a a paradigm as it was between ios 6 and ios 7 you know um the 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 navigation titles have the large fonts that we've been talking about for the last couple of years you know large title styles um you know and it's kind of like i wonder if we're going to see a bunch of apps for a while that are just very sort of you know remember how limited things were in 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 um, Xcode 3 and 4 in terms of how you design things. Um, a lot of apps look the same. People went to skeuomorphic to try and make them different, look different from each other. Yeah, and everything um, was table view back then. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yep. so so it's kind of like um, those are the kind of things that we're seeing in in what we're getting right now, at least in the tutorials. I, I picked up, I um, uh, probably should give a shout out to Paul Hudson for his book. He's got a, <laughs> I don't, the guy doesn't sleep. I don't know what the hell he's doing, but he has been cranking out um, tutorials and articles and stuff like that like mad since uh in fact i think he was doing it during uh wwc but yeah he's put he's put out like you know six or seven um uh, youtube videos he's got a couple of books already he put out a, a mac os uh book as well which i picked up wow. yeah so yeah i haven't had, even had time to watch all the videos yet <laughs> i know and he's just cranking them out I don't, like i said I don't, I don't know what he does he's you know and, and people are joking on twitter like you know when he comes out with something new like tomorrow they'll say what took him so long you know <laughs> like he's yeah he's just he's going crazy so we're worried about you, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you're, you're pretty, you're not exaggerating by much because it does seem like as soon as the video had ended in like this stage 
wasn't even cold from the walk, you know, the presenter walking off and he's always like, Oh, I've got this book. I'm like what? How yeah, yeah, How could yeah. you already have this? Oh, you have content, you have videos on YouTube and stuff. Yeah. Do you think he had some advanced notice or something? No, no. I, th- I think he's just gobbling it up and, and going at 500 miles an hour, but yeah. yeah. Hmm. I mean, start dirty rumors about how he's like a vampire on cocaine or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) he does no no need to sleep or eat or do anything else. Well, it's like this one I watched one I watched this morning on my on my commute. It's like twenty minutes long, and it's it's on. He's got this little cupcake app that he makes. You know how to order cupcakes, and he's got in there you know um, an an array basically of of different flavors, and he's got a couple of toggles for whether you add sprinkles or frosting, and then he's got you know the name, address, you know where did the it to kind of worked out and then um he's using bindable objects to basically do the say the updating and whatever and he's passing it off to a url and he's getting back a return and you know he's doing a, not a lot of validation but very minor amount validation but it's like a, almost like he's got this complete app all thought out and in 20 minutes he builds it it's it's incredible so yeah i don't know i don't know he, unless he's got this whole stack of app ideas that he's you know recycling i really haven't followed this stuff too closely but yeah it's crazy how quickly he's putting pumping this stuff out and Anyway, more on him later. <laughs> uh, where are we here? So, yeah, you got one more thing here, Jaime? Yes. So this is an article by um, on Seashore.com, which is by Eddie Sullivan, a, uh, I believe, a consultant, software engineer. But the basic premise of this post is, what do you do when you can't use the new hotness? And you can't use hmm. Swift UI and Combine? And he's got, I think, a very pragmatic approach of like, look, if even if you can't use it today, you can start thinking about your app in a way such that that it will be easier to migrate in the future. Right, right. Even if you just sort of read the um, the section headers, like minimize sources of truth, views represent a state, not a stream of events, use an update function, dispatch modification events, and then figuring out, you know, when should a UI component own data and how are you mm. dealing with those impacts? And also you should probably create reusable components and prefer immutability. I think all of these are pretty, pretty good ideas if you want to get into the following the same architecture and lifestyle uh, and life cycle of data that Swift UI and Combine are leading us towards. Yeah, I did. He talks about this. Uh, he recommends this in, early in the article about the data flow through Swift UI. I did go to that session and it covers a lot of, uh, or was it Combine in practice? Com- I'm going to start King Combine now, I guess. Anyway, um, you guys will have to get over it. Uh, the I, I watched one of the WDC videos where they had two different speakers, one of yeah. which called it Combine and the other one called it Combine in the same talk. So I don't think anybody knows what it's really called. All right. Um, so uh, the, the, I think it was the um, the, um, the combine in in practice. They talked about the three different ways, three different paradigms for using combine. And I think that one was like sort of more in a traditional type app, and then it moved towards how you can get into using bindings and state and stuff like that in in Swift UI. So Swift UI does a, has a, handles a lot of it like automatically for you, just like it does with the the rest of the, the structure of the app. Um, um, whereas, you know, you have more of that sort of uh, publisher, subscriber, and, and who does what to whom kind of thing uh, to deal with in um, in the, you know, if you're reading it, working in traditional uh, iOS apps or, or in Mac OS apps as well. So, but check out that uh, data flow through Swift. I remember that one was, it was a good one, but also the combine in practice. Yeah, I, I think one that will be probably reasonably easy for folks to do uh, out of some of these things will be, I guess it's almost the same, two halves of the same coin, the um, 
views representing a state, not a stream of events, and mm -hmm. using an update function. The idea here, and it's something that I've used to really good effect, is to have your view be really as dumb as possible. Um, and that's more than just UI view. Like when we're talking about that sort of cohabitating UI view, UI view controller idea. Treat them both you know, almost roughly the same when we're talking about this architecturally. Right, and right. if you have your view or your know, view controller say, okay, this other thing is telling me what to do, right? And, and let's call it a view model, you know, as loaded as that word is. Let's just call it that, right? This other thing is saying like, okay, I'm a view. What should I do with this image? Oh, use this image. Great. Um, I also need to display an attributed string here. Great. This other thing is telling me what to display and have that just be sort of a single pass-through sort of thing where as this view um, gets initialized with that data, it's setting, you know, all these different UI kit enabled things. And then if you want to deal with, well, what happens if a user chooses another thing and they want to have, uh, you know, the screen blink red, for example. Um, well, that's what the update function is about. That does sort of the second half of that life cycle where, oh, now I need to change my background on some alternating schedule between, you know, red and not red, or I need to bold some text somewhere. But it makes it really easy to reason about like, wait, how did I even get into this state? Well, there's only a handful of entry points, ideally one, where that information would have changed. And that should be really similar to how Combine is working with things where you're watching bindings and other uh, variables to say, oh, I am going to react to this change that has occurred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. There's, But there's one place where, where that can get a little tricky, and that's if you have long animations. Uh, honey, mm -hmm. what happens if, and I've faced this situation lots of times, and there's, there's not one simple answer, but if the state can change faster than the lifetime of the animation, how do you handle that? So say a state comes in and and you know the result of the state is oh this animation needs to be kicked off as as a function of that state uh, and then uh, and then again as I said the state changes and the animation is still going that kind of thing can be a little bit tricky to handle in that that type of situation maybe maybe that just means you have to rethink how your animations work and that's sort of a design problem uh, and and so so maybe if you can if if you can have uh, all of your animations correspond to some existing state and then when the state changes, you can just turn off the animation, then maybe you can get around that kind of thing. But but sometimes that requires a little bit of thinking through and, and it can be a little bit tricky. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if I'm getting the flavor of what you're talking about, if you have that sort of um, you know deeper requirement, then you might have to use something like the UI um, UI property animators yep, yep. and hang on to stuff so you can be like, whoa, 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 this isn't a fire and forget um, UI view animate with duration, like whatever, like I don't care what happens, just do it. You might actually have to do a little bit of extra bookkeeping to say, whoa, the state has changed to this. So if this thing is there, I need to cancel it. Yeah. Don't do that animation. Do this other one. And one thing that's interesting about UI property animators is that is that they can have parameters of their own. They can have properties of their own. So in theory, you can have a, an animation going and change a property of an animation in on the fly by just changing the property on the UI property animator, which is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And I guess if things really got hairy, I mean, these are, we're talking about operations that are going to work kind of like NS operation and you might end up having to use that sort of extra structure and infrastructure if you really got a, okay, this thing was going to fold itself into a triangle but now it needs to look like a pony. Right, right. Hmm. Alright, so we'll get to our picks here. Um, 
I got a couple, and Jaime, you have one as well. Um, do you have anything marked Mark, this week? Uh, not yet, but let me work on it while you're talking. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so uh, last week was Father's Day, as some of you may know, and, and uh, I, I met a gentleman named Kyle, or he calls himself Kilo Loco on Twitter and on YouTube, and uh, he has a little YouTube channel. He talks about Swift and things like that. Give me one. And so he was he threw out a, a Father's Day for a bunch of uh, fathers he listed off, and, and uh, myself included. And uh, one of the one of the lady developers came back and said, uh, "Would you do something like this for all the Swift moms out there um, next year?" And uh, he said, "Absolutely." But he says, "I only know five different women that are that are, in, that are into Swift." And so I thought, "Well, I'd reply back to him." And I basically listed off uh, in as much as I could in one tweet uh, as many Swift developers as I know that happen to be women. Right? I don't know if they're mothers or not, so I'll leave it to be up to him to figure that out. And so I went through and I did like three or four different. Uh, uh, lists and uh, what was interesting the result of that was a lot of uh, other lady coders discovered each other and they've all you know started following each other and they've created a network which was kind of a beneficial uh, side of this and um, Leah Marlowe one of the ladies from com, had started a github page where women can go and list their uh, get themselves listed on the on this github page which you know keeps a list of them as well um, Jamie Newberry uh, replied in one of the tweets that she linked a couple of Twitter accounts uh, as well that people can hook up to, and that is uh, WWDC Girls and Ladies at WWDC. Those are two Twitter handles that uh, uh, people are connecting up with as well. Um, so, yeah, um, happy to be a conduit to help people connect and, uh, you know, get more more developers knowing each other about each other and, about you know, can share stories and challenges and things like that. So that was my contribution to the world of coding last week. It's really good. I do think it is very important to get more voices out there, get more mm-hmm. people known add more to the conversation i think uh even at a micro level this really helps yeah for sure yeah and it is definitely encouraging that it, it seems like these days more and more women are getting into at least in in, in our corner of the world in the ios world I, I tend to see a lot more women developers than than a few years back which is a, which is a great thing yeah yeah i mean i went to a talk a couple of years ago at 360 iDev, and they pointed out that the it's not so much the the women of, of a certain age that are need to get jobs and get positions and things like that but it's actually getting the girls who are young enough, and this is where App Camp for Girls comes in, is to get the girls when they're young, just at the age when they, I think around the time they discover boys, <laughs> um, that that the they need to be encouraged to stay in the sciences and the maths and the engineering sort of pursuits as well, rather than, you know, incur- discouraged away from, from pursuing those things as, as being not, you know, not uh, mm-hmm. pursuits for women, right? Mm-hmm. So that, otherwise we need we wouldn't get as many astronauts and scientists and engineers as, as we need, right? So happy to be supportive of, of you guys and be an ally for you. So there you go. Um, my next pick is uh, from our friend uh, Paul Hudson, or basically, uh, he pointed out in one of the tutorials, this little, um, hey, come in, it's refreshing in. What the hell is this? Yes, I am ironically refreshing the link is the page, wrong. and I think well, normally we'd call this fireballed after daring fireball from John Gruber, but I guess it's got two strawed or Hudson auto corrected. If it was mentioned, was it mentioned in the thing that you're about to talk about? Wait, what's this rec? It's r e q r e s dot i n is the is the URL. Why did it go to refreshing? Auto complete. Weird. Hang on, let me let me edit the link or here. Right oh yeah. Oh no, that one doesn't work either. Hang on, it's not it's not it's uh, it's I don't know. Maybe just paste it as your 
your browser rather than clicking on the link because the link, the link that's hidden in Google is wrong. Click on it. There's a little pop up that comes. Yeah, in I got it. Okay. So, so the, the link is actually so the link is actually rec res r e q r e s and it's a free API service for you if you're testing your uh, if you want if you were building something that wants to send JSON or any kind of data really posts and gets and that kind of stuff. Twenty four seven. This server is available. Um, in the case of this tutorial I was working on today, you create a, a JSON packet. You you know use the codable protocol, encode it, fire it up to this this server. The server then responds with the the data you just sent it. It's just a way of you know like playing catch with yourself, I guess, right? Um, and then you can parse the data and see what comes out on the other side. And the the, the, the tutorial I was talking about a little while ago, which is the the, cup, the cupcake application, uh, which uses which makes use of the new forms element, which came out a couple of days ago. Um, it shows you how to how to do sections, how to create you know buttons for for table like look like table rows, um, handling you know uh, text field and data, and then have using the bindable object and the pass through uh, pass through subject to pass through subject. Um, anyway, I might get that wrong, but uh, to to create a bindable object and then use that to automatic and then use a did set. I think is the correct terminology for that to update the the uh, the state of of what data you're catching and then you know pass it up to this URL and have it return and do something with it when it comes back. So just a quick way of you know sort of doing a scratch pad um, kind of development. I mean, that's what the link the the res res rec res link is all about or in recrest.in is all about. Um, yeah, just a quick way of uh, getting some stuff done. So that's cool. And of course, you know, I do encourage people to take a look at Paul's uh, work. He's got a couple of books, but he puts a lot of stuff up uh, online. He also has a mailing list. I think if you're a, a subscriber to his mailing list, he offers a lot of free uh, free step-by-step things. You can sort of, if you want to get your feet wet in, in you know, Swift UI and combine and that kind of stuff, you can do that through his guidance. Um, and he's, of course, two straws at two straws on Twitter. The third pick I have to, uh, was something we saw at work the other day. It was uh, and it's a really interesting video. It's uh, it's basically what does a cyber attack look like in real life? And and if you watch it, it's about it basically it's a, a real the real bank, uh, bicycle franchise. I believe it's a real one in in, in the UK. Um, you know they got the store and they have the shirts like Apple. You know they have the branded shirts and they the, you know the the bikes that you know be for commuting around. And um, so in the in the story, the uh, a store opens across the street with identical identical branding except like slightly altered letters so it's kind of the same but not the same um, and they have people dressed in you know same young you know uh, hipster type people wearing t-shirts and and they have the same bike in the window and uh, they start to attract customers to come over there uh, to, to the other store and then they flood the the original store with with fake customers who come and just occupy the the, the staff's time and with uh, bogus arguments and eventually they board up the front of the the store, they put you know clo- out of business or going out of business, and they kind of redirect the traffic away from the store. So it's kind of it goes through what a cyber attack looks like, you know, denial of service and and spoofing and um, you know grabbing, you know, creating a false URL, and that kind of stuff, and, and and copycatting a brand. So it's a really interesting video. I think it's like five minutes long, and it just shows you how how quickly. Or I mean, not that it would take five minutes for this to happen, but this sort of what ramifications of this kind of activity is in real life. So it's an interesting watch. 
Yeah, the uh, the boarding up of their place and like, oh, you have to pay us money to get access. Yeah, to the, the ransomware. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's what it's talking about. It, it's a cool video, but uh, I'm a little disappointed at the end that it, it was actually an advertisement for an insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never made it all the way through, but I just thought it was an interesting interesting uh, analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always an ad by somebody, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just abusing myself with all the possible really bad combinations you could do. You know, you have a you have a commercial like, oh, I really didn't think about that. Maybe we should come together as a society and not let these divisions bring us apart. What? And then at the end it says Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> Depends. Mm-hmm. Well, now that we've watched that, um, let's talk about the watch, specifically right. Watch OS 6 and its noise app, which people may or may not remember from uh, from the keynote. Mm-hmm. We have here a, a nice tweet, Blake Helms, a software development manager at uh, EBSCO Industries, and he has a video showing how the accuracy of noise app does or does not match with a decibel meter that he has. And if you watch the vi- little video on Twitter, it's pretty cool, like how good it is. Like it's it's reasonably accurate when you see... Right. Um, yeah. What a, you know, a more professional tool would do versus the uh, the tiny little microphone that you get on your watch. Mm-hmm. And some other folks ask in the uh, in the thread, you know, how far does that go? Does it end up clipping at some point? And uh, looks like anecdotally, it stops somewhere around 120 decibels. But mm. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, you don't work anywhere. Yeah, that's, that's, that's quite that's that loud. So why can't it tell you what the room temperature is? Why? <laughs> <laughs> we demand our sensors. <laughs> well, are you, are you kidding or are you, are you really asking? I'm really asking, yeah. Because it generates a lot of heat. And if oh, you had yeah, a sensor so inside there, it would be measuring the heat generated by the device, not the room temperature. Yeah, I kind of kind of thought about that as, as I was asking. Yeah. You, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> I feel like they could compensate for that, though. So they'd know, like, the base electrical load depend- going on. They'd yeah. know, like, how it varies from, uh, from true temperature. Mm, not not really, because they they know the load tells you the amount of heat generated, not the temperature. Mm. So the temperature depends a lot of, a lot on external factors of how is the heat sunk, you know, how is the heat dissipated, what's the ambient temperature. Uh, so mm. in other words, if if you have if you're generating heat in a cold room, it will radiate more quickly than if you generate heat in a, in a warm room. Well, maybe that's mm. not 100 percent true, but anyway, more or less. <laughs> uh, Can't they just right. install Heisenberg compensators and yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is there's enough uncertainty that uh, our little gimmick is not probably worth the engineering effort to right. try to get so, a really bad so result. So if there were, say, if there were a Bluetooth-connected external thermometer that you could mount in your room, then it would work perfectly. Because mm. then you could measure the temperature of the room and then compensate for everything. Right, right. I'm joking, of course. <laughs> then you have to carry that thing around like an idiot, right? <laughs> if you had a Bluetooth-connected external thermometer, you wouldn't need to have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, they would make it so it wouldn't actually tell you what the temperature was unless you had an apple watch to see what the temperature was right that's true that's true that's that's the the idiocy of that idea Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thinking of new and exotic ways like all right so it plays a really high frequency and therefore outside the range of human hearing audio file with known characteristics and then listens to hear what's coming back and then decides oh based on this we can make some guesses around the humidity factor just given how the pitch has changed given the moisture in the air (laughs) now how much would you pay for this temperature 
since the race. Yeah, yeah, watch. yeah. There's yeah. There's some other factors there too. Sea level, you know, the, what's the what's the density of the air? Yeah, I mean, they can start making some guesses on that. Like, you know, if you're listening to this very show from Mile High Stadium in Denver, and you're right here at sea level in Seattle, but you can make some guesses. So, it would the frequency ones, of our voices be different at, at, in Mile High in Denver than it would down at sea level? Slightly, yes, but not noticeably. Yeah, because the density of the air is slightly <laughs> different. Yeah, sure. So did you see I got Photoshop running on my iPad? Oh yeah, I did see <laughs> I did see your, your tweet. That was, yeah. How did you end up getting that working? What was the so was the I, I think about six months ago, maybe four months ago, we talked about Mini VMAC, uh, which lets you run System 6 or System 7 on your iOS devices. So I had installed it back then. And then um, I was uh, dug through, I was talking, I met Laura Savino at uh, WWDC, and she's just taken a job at Adobe. And so we were, I was just joking with her about putting Photoshop on my iPad. And she said, I'd love to see a picture of that, right? So when I got home, I, I went and dug out my, my old um, archived um, uh, discs and stuff like that, and stuck it. And so I, I drug out a. Uh, I had the disc and I put it onto my onto my drobo and I tried to read them. And, and so you can transfer disc images from um, from your Mac to the iPad using you know using AirDrop, right? And they go into the files, and then the files has a folder for Mini VMAC. So anything you put into that file folder on in the files on iOS, you can then um, you just kind of do a two finger swipe, and it lets you load up a, a, a dialog box, and you can mount floppy disk images, right? So, so you can inst- like I, had, I, I actually ran the installer to get Photoshop 2 in there, right? But um, I was too smart for myself back in the day because back in the day when we had no, we had very small drives. We used to use a program called Disk Doubler to make the images, mm-hmm. make files smaller. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. And when you double clicked on them, the Disk Doubler would automatically decompress them and you could work with them. So, but because I was so brilliant, I disk doubled my Photoshop 1.0, stuck it on a floppy disk and, you know, archived it, right? Mm. And then a few years later when I, I made disk images of all my floppies and stuck them onto a CD. So so now then, so now I've got Photoshop 1, I've got the actual application on my iPad, but it's disk doubled. And I don't, I, can't, I haven't figured out how to get disk doubler onto the onto the thing. So a couple of nights ago, I was looking at my, I have a 6100 Mac here. I had to try and find the lowest common denominator Mac. So I got my Mac out of, off the shelf and plugged it in and put a monitor on it and stuck the CD in and opened up Photoshop. And so now I'm just going through like trying to get, you know, trying to decrease compress or get them into there. And one thing I discovered about OS 10 is as of like 10.6, I think it can no longer read HFS uh, volumes. So you can't read the contents of a floppy disk on, on the current operating systems. So last night I discovered there's a, a, a somebody who's written a tool called HFS plus writer or something like that. Um, so I can run that on my Mac here. Actually, I have it here running, I think. Yeah. H- oh, HFS disk maker. With that, I can take a disk image or I can decompress a folder and then uh, I can t- use that to make a, a proper HFS disk because I I kept stuck in, sticking these floppy disks into the into the uh, iPad uh, running System Six and it would tell me the disk was no good and reinitialize it, which usually meant that the the either it didn't like the formatting or the disk was corrupt or something like that, right? So, but I actually got Photoshop 1.0 running on my my 6100 behind me, which I was actually amazed by that because you know that's a, an app from 1990, right? Running on system I think seven seven or seven point five on this Mac behind me. 
And I found a copy of the Talking Moose too, but I got I think Talking Moose stopped working in System Seven, so um, I might try and get the Talking Moose to run on on my uh, my iPad as well and do a proper outro. <laughs> I think you should do one thing, and that's put these tweets or links to them in the show notes for those of you driving at home. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. I All was uh, quick to quip that if if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a pixel, and yeah. you very quickly responded to me, and so that was a different version of Photoshop that started. Yeah, that Photoshop, Photoshop Four. They added the dodging tool. <laughs> so. So Photoshop that wasn't even an OS ten application, right? No, it was. It, was the, it started. It came out in nineteen ninety, which would have been around uh, uh, System six. So the the version that you installed, though the two point oh one, that's would have been like System seven, System eight. So the, uh, the installer. No, 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 not System way before System eight. It would be System seven for system sure. Seven, yeah. So the installer yeah, actually fact, ran. Yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm running. I'm running an emulator on my iPad. Oh, oh, that's what you do. Oh, I see. Okay, I missed that part. Yeah. So I've got an emulator. Got I had got to it. I had to get a, a yeah. Mac ROM and run it. In yep. the emulator, so yep. it's actually running a, a Mac ROM mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to to make it run. And it runs it runs like System Six, so, uh, and I think I actually have the monitor at ten twenty four by seven sixty eight, which, as you know, was not a size of a monitor back then, unless you had a lot of money, mm-hmm. right? So it's funny that like, there's a couple of sample images in there because the color on the the emulator is two fifty six colors, right? Mm, bit, and yeah. so so the if you if you zoom in on the picture I have on on um, on Twitter, you can see that uh, there's a lot of dithering in the image to make it look like a proper image like you and you can zoom down to the, the pixel level but um on 256 obviously it had it had trouble um you know rendering different shades of color so it used they used to use dithering color dithering to do that that's kind of cool mm-hmm. but and i also have the, another what's the name I, of the emulator that you're running it's um it's called mini mini space vmac mini vmac yeah and there's a whole project they, they run it on linux they run it on windows they run it on a number number of systems you can actually there's, there's a website too where you can run mac os games and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So I have area beyond Dark Castle running on my on my Mac. But of course, in order once you get into the emulator, you really quickly learn that you need to have a keyboard because you can't call the keyboard up on the iPad, right? Mm. So I have a Logitech keyboard here, so I use that for the keyboard when I do text entry. And uh, because of iOS 13, I'm now able to add a mouse to it, right? So so I've got a proper mouse running on the thing. And it's, it's funny the the actual 6100, the mouse I picked out of my I have like a whole bunch of mice here, but the one I picked up has really dirty you know wheels. Because or, or the balls have shrunk or something like that. Because it's really hard to use the mouse, even though I have a mouse pad here mm. on the old legacy Mac. Yep, it's in, in its beige glory. <laughs> it's all, all stuff from uh, when Steve Jobs was not at Apple, right? Yeah, so it's been fun, fun little project. Nice. Anyway, so I guess that's it for another week. So hey, hi, many people want to get in touch with you? Where do they reach you? I'm on Twitter is at Dev with the Hair. All right, and uh, Mark, if people want to get in touch with you, Mark R at Smapsoft.com. All right, my name is Timitra T I M M I T R A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. So. Um, yeah, so until next week, we'll say bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find out details on how to help us out on the website, mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Now stick around for the after show, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Yeah, no, when we were kids, we used to all take our sticks to school like in the morning, and you know, we'd play a little bit in the morning, and then at recess we'd play, and then at lunchtime we'd play, and then we'd go home, you know? Mm-hmm. And then on, on like, when I was talking about that time when, when I was into Bobby Orr, um, it was like when I was 10, and uh, we used to go out in the street and just play, like, all the time. On Saturday and Sunday, we'd play, like, you know, mm-hmm. somebody would bring out a couple of nets, and we'd play for, like, hours. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was when, you know, we would all, all be sort of calling out, you know, who our favorite players were and stuff. And, and for a lot of us, Bobby Orr was the was the guy that got called at the most. Even though we were, li- I was living in St. Catharines at the time, so it should have been um, should have been probably the, the Maple Leafs or even the, the Habs in some cases, right? So Montreal Canadiens. Um, but actually, St. Catharines when I lived there was the farm team for uh, Chicago Blackhawks. Hmm. So Marcel, you know, ever heard of Marcel Dion? Uh, yeah, I think I've heard the name. Name sounds. Familiar. Yeah, he was he was the the top scorer in the league before Gretzky came along. Hmm. Yeah, so I watched his whole junior career or most of his junior career in St. Catharines. My dad used to go down and watch the junior Canadians play against the St. Catharines Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so I saw him, saw him play. I saw some of the, the you heard of Guy Lafleur? Yeah. And uh, Gilbert Perrault, he was the first, he was the first draft guy for, first captain, I think, of the Buffalo Sabres. Mm. So yeah. When I was when I was in high school, I had a Buffalo Sabres sweater that I used to wear all the time. Mm. Yeah, because my dad took me down to a game and I got a sweater. But yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually reading, a, I'm listening to an audio book that was recorded by George Stromalopoulos and it's um it's a book about I thought it was a bit more about Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip, you know, who died a couple of years ago or last year I guess. Um called The Never Ending Present. And um because he, he sort of did some some thinking about Aboriginal rights just before he died. And so I, I wasn't sure what the thing was about, but it actually turns out to be a sort of a, a history of the tragically hip, right? So it's interesting because they're talking about like when they were first starting out and you know they you know people wouldn't recognize the players, the singers by their names and one day they took and he introduced uh, introduced Gord Downey to some guy, and he, he looked at him and he goes, "Oh, you're the goaltender," <laughs> you know, like these, these guys. As typical Canadians, as we were just talking about before you joined Jaime about hockey, and and uh, the tragically hip was also known for you know, constantly playing hockey and you know making ice rinks all over the place, all over the country, and playing and you know singer sing, playing across the country playing hockey, right? So, oh, I did not but, know that. What's that? That they were known for playing hockey. Well, yeah, I mean, he was a goaltender, right? Gord, Gord Downey, and you know the whole team was or the whole the whole team the whole band was like were, were players right so it's it's kind of a, th- a thing here I didn't you, know know, like, you know just, it's like you know you guys throw baseballs around we play hockey right yeah it, it is kind of a cliche but in for for very many very many of us that's that's the, the thing we grow up yeah, on, right? i'm not sure kids in the u.s today play all that much baseball i don't know well they probably they're probably too busy plugged into some you know game system yeah right? well yes but but when they do go outside i think it's probably more basketball or soccer yeah basketball or football well that's what i mean but that's what i'm saying like the thing is we play basketball we play football. Gretzky was going to be could have been a pro baseball player. Did you know that? Did not know that. Yeah, he was he was being scouted as a baseball player at the time when oh. he was drafted into the NHL. Hmm. But uh, yeah, and uh, and I, I kind of I don't know. I often wonder like uh, you probably make just as much money as, as a pro baseball player as you would as a hockey player. Well, would he have been money. as good as a baseball player though? Uh-huh. He was a really good pitcher apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently he was. Hmm. So yeah, but he, like he was like triple A whatever. The triple A is like our top level sports kids. You know, mm-hmm. like the very elite player. So well, those are the ones that usually get you know groomed to go on to the NHL or pro baseball or whatever. Mm. And we have some um, some Canadian basketball players in the NBA as well, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. so there you go. Um,